not exactly sure what the position of the petitioner is, other than being frustrated with decisions that have been made. That's all I've been able to glean. This individual hasn't come and spoken with me or my office specifically about things that, um, that are troubling him. Basically, who even are you? So it's, that's kind of like the, the cool trash talk these days. It's like, who even are you? Never heard of you. Don't know who you are. Uh, but that's the mayor, uh, Jody Gontek, referring to the uh, individual who has uh, launched this petition, uh, a recall petition officially now received by the city of Calgary. So the clock is ticking on this. Ultimately, at the end of the day, maybe it's a moot point. If hundreds of thousands of Calgarians are prepared to sign a petition uh, calling on the mayor to be recalled, then ultimately it really doesn't matter who started it. It's more about the sum of all of it just become one of, of many signatures. Uh, but yes, the ball is uh, now rolling here. Uh, the petition as it stands would, if it succeeds, remove the mayor from office. It's a little bit different for municipal politicians. I mean, this legislation is still pretty new. Uh, but basically, if you try to recall an MLA, and there's a threshold you need to meet, 40% of eligible voters uh, within a 60-day period. But for an MLA, if you gather enough signatures on a petition, there would be a recall vote, like yes or no, should we recall this politician? And if the result is yes, there would be another vote, which would be the by-election. With municipal office holders, that step is skipped. If the recall uh, petition succeeds, the recall is successful, the individual is removed from office, and there's a by-election. So as it stands now, Calgarians are set to vote in a municipal election next year. But if this succeeds, there will be a mayoral race much sooner than that. But back to that question. Who is this guy who's brought forward this petition, who's launched this effort? Well, he's a Calgary business owner. His name is Landon Johnston, and he joins us on the line here this afternoon. Landon, good to talk to you here. Welcome to the program. Yeah, thanks for having me. What did you make of the mayor's comments? You know, like, who is this guy? I don't know who he is. I don't know what he's upset about. I haven't talked to him. Uh, what did you think of that reaction, first of all? Well, to be honest, I haven't looked at or had any time to look at any sort of news regarding anything, to be honest. I've just been focused on getting signatures. Um, I mean, people have messaged me saying what she said. Um, and I think she said something about being worried about the data being collected yes, well yeah. that seems not i don't know if she's trying to add fear into people signing it but we are following their framework the government's framework the legislation mm -hmm. we're doing everything by the book yeah. we're going to only have canvassers out there who you can trust or we're going to do our best i mean we're going to have hundreds and thousands of uh, canvassers going out shortly getting signatures um so i mean only only you have to vet yourself like so if, if you've got a guy coming to your door asking you to sign it i mean you have every right to ask questions on sure. who the person is getting the signatures so i mean you have to do your best to um trust you know that what we're doing is by the book and i mean i i had a good conversation with the city clerks today about you know, this seems like a lot for me to um, basically hold on to all these signatures or all these forms at my house. Um, and I was right. saying, like, well, why couldn't there be, like, a drop-off box at the city that would be secure and wouldn't be opened by anyone other than me dropping off? Um, at least it would be in, like, a secure location, um, whereas when it's at my house um, or maybe not at my house, could be somewhere else locked up, um, but I'm going to do everything I can. Like, my personal information is important and, and, you know, everybody else's information is important. So I'm going to make sure everything our, on our end is to the legislation. Um, and that's their framework. We, we're taking the legal steps given to us. Um, and so if she doesn't like that, then, you know, she should petition the government on changing the recall process. Yeah. So yeah. We're, just following, we're just following their rules. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's an enormous task. Uh, under those same rules, uh, you know, you've got to collect about 500,000 signatures. So it's it's interesting. So it's you need 40% of the population, basically. But they also have to be eligible voters. So you can't, you know, teenagers can't sign this. Uh, yeah. So that that's that's a pretty massive task you got ahead of you here. Yeah, am I nuts? Or is what? that just like the most ridiculous thing anybody's ever heard? Like, how did this pass legislation? Why wasn't there a certain uh, percentage of 
how large the municipality is and then have a different set of percentages and why is the municipality different than the MLA uh, recall like it, yeah. there's so much difference to it and I mean I went through every reading of the bill in legislation I went through all the select committees recommendations and just how it came to this as this benchmark um, is just it's bananas and so a big part of this is I'm going to leave no stone unturned on us doing the best we can now I'll, I'll be honest initially I started this because I just wanted my voice to be heard right like that was I was I was upset about something and I said oh 500 bucks like that's a lot of money for a lot of people but I was like you know what this is my best recourse of getting my voice heard um, so I initially contacted a couple you know um, news stations They're like hey I'm starting this petition I'm not sure where it's gonna go but um, but now it's turned into this massive where I've got organizations um, lending support I've got election lawyers um, you know offering support like it's it's snowballed into this massive movement and I am I am 100% behind you know doing everything we can to expose the process for what it is and then hopefully by the end of it whether we get enough signatures or not you know they're going to have heard my voice they're going to have heard the voice of all the calgarians right like it's it's not just one group of people it's left wing it's right wing it's old it's young it's all nationalities have have reached out to me and said hey i want my voice heard as well like i feel like i've become this uh I mean, just the amount of emails and phone calls and all this, like, I feel like I've become a place for people to vent, which is awesome. But I mean, I'm not a politician. It's just, it just lends that I'm maybe doing the right thing. And, you know, I just basically love, and uh, I just love the fact that we can do this and that the legislation is available for us to do. Um, I mean, I'm just, <laughs> I was born in Vernon, BC. Like, I'm just a small business owner. I don't have a degree in anything. I just, you know, I enjoy my city, I enjoy my job, I enjoy um, the people in Calgary, like, and the more people I get to know and the more signatures I get, like, it's, we just have so much more in common than, you know, we're led to believe. Like, that's just, I, I really believe in that now, that, you know, we've all kind of come together and it's just like the amount of support we've had is has been insane. And it's just, it's, it's to the point now where, like, I've, I've got organizations, I've got team members, I've got people coming in, um, helping me with uh, collecting um, signature or to, to canvas um, to vet the canvassers. Like I've got teams that are, are going out and making sure the canvassers are, are well read on their laws and where they can go, what they can do. Um, and it's just, um, yeah, I'm, I'm excited now. Like this has become, you know, a, a big thing and, you know, I'm, I'm excited to be a part of it. Yeah, well, it seems like there's a lot of interest. I mean, you know, there's there's something going on here. But I want to better understand kind of the motivation here. Like, why do this? Or what, what's the issue with the, the mayor herself specifically? Well, it's nothing personal. It's a job review of our elected officials. It's It was our opportunity or my opportunity as a citizen. Like, you know, if she was... If she had 90% favorability rating, I could still do this, but it mm-hmm. would just be a fart in the wind. But... You know, looking at it, it was one thing after another with the leadership of the council of, of of the mayor, and you just compare what their duties and responsibilities to what they've been doing the last two years. It doesn't add up, and you know a lot of people see that. A lot of people who don't care about politics are starting to feel the pinch in their pockets, like they're like it's they they've created this themselves. Like now, this is a job review for them, and we're gonna sit them down and be like, hey. <laughs> You know, your position is not, don't get too comfortable where you're sitting because your position is not safe anymore, right? So you guys better start doing your job or you will be asked to leave, you know? So right. this is a great, and, you know, I there's some counselors that be a lot easier to get rid of them. But, I mean, leadership comes from the top. And, you know, I just believe that she's had her opportunity and she's failed at that. And that's either my opinion or a lot of people's opinion. And we're going to find that out with this petition. Yeah, that's just it. Uh, what about the argument, though, that, look, we, we will have an election next year. Uh, that's it's a, it's a fixed term for mayors and councillors. Next year is an election year and Calgarians will have an opportunity to, to render their verdict then. What, why now? It's kind of a, a silly argument that that'd be different if we didn't have this as a legal recourse mm-hmm. um, 
but it is a legal recourse. So we're doing it by democracy. So I, I get that, yeah, um, they have an opportunity, or they would have had an opportunity to um, have an election in two more years, but, you know, because this legislation came in, you know, we have, like, we're allowed to do this, so why not, right? Let's let's use what's available to us. So, I mean, it is democracy. This is how it was supposed to work, and this is the way it's supposed to work. If they don't like it, then get rid of the bill. Like, you know, get, like, but that would be bad on them to try to get rid of a bill that, you know, would keep them in power um, longer than this bill would let them. So mm-hmm. I, I don't know. Like, that's that's a, that's a good question, but at the same time, like, it's available to us, so we're going to use it. Yeah. Uh, so now the question is, I guess, so the clock is ticking here. These all need to be physical signatures. There's no digital option under this legislation. So how do you go about this now? I, well, that's the that's the process I'm trying to expose, right? So it went from just me going around collecting signatures between jobs to now, like I said, it's it's become this massive thing where I just every time I refresh my email, it's another 10, 20, 30 people ask me how to sign it. Uh, well, the process is is it has to be signed in person. It has to be legible. It has to be signed. The the person getting the signatures has to sign an affidavit, which has to be also signed by a commissioner so like there's so many steps for Mm -hmm. us to do it properly that we've now had to get teams in place to make sure we can do this by their books right um so we we're 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 getting hold of lawyers and notaries and commissioners who can actually sign the affidavits of the witnesses of the signature so like that's such a that's tough to do, right? So, like, it's it's, it's taken us a couple of days to get the the website going. Um, I just started a an X or Twitter handle where I'll, I'll be updating people with the the amount of votes we're getting, where we're going to have uh, drop offs, and where we'll have uh, commissioners set up. We'll have uh, they're not really rallies. It's just like I'll be in front of city hall this Saturday at 1 p.m. just collecting signatures and. Um, signing up canvassers so if people want to come down like it's it's not a rally like it's mm-hmm. it's just that's why i wanted to to kind of launch it um and i was going to be doing that regardless just myself just by myself in front of city hall trying to get my voice heard but now like i said it's become this big thing where we've got different organizations lending hands who i'll be honest a lot of organizations have come to me and said landon we had planned on doing this when it was a bit warmer <laughs> and I had no affiliation with them. They just said, hey, well, we had the infrastructure in place before you filed the petition, so let's pool all our resources, right? And these are left-wing organizations, right-wing, center. Like, it's just everybody's kind of come together. And believe it or not, the mayor has been able to unite us in maybe not the way she was hoping, but, you know, it's definitely brought a lot of people together. All right, so you say City Hall this Saturday, 1 o'clock? Yeah, 1 p.m. I'll be sitting out, signing up uh, signatures, and uh, and yeah, ca- canvassers ready to go. And what you, you mentioned, there's there's a website and a Twitter account. Can you give us those? Yeah, it's um, www.recallmayorgondek.com, and people can sign up, and we will get someone to reach out to them on where and when we can get their signature. Um, and then there will also be a link to download petition forms so they can go out and canvas. Um, and then I've put together, like, the guidelines of what canvassers' roles are and what you can and can't do. Um, so that will all be available on the website. I believe right now, I believe people can go to that website and sign up and um, someone will reach out to them. But like I said, it's over. it's been thousands and thousands and thousands of emails a day um, of people reaching out on how to sign it. Um, and then the Twitter handle is, I, it might be just my name, um, because I just opened up the Twitter handle. It hasn't let me change it, but it's just Landon Johnston. Um, and then I've just been using the hashtag, uh, hashtag uh, recall Gondek as the official hashtag, I guess. Um, and then that's just where we'll, we'll update people on drop-off locations, and we'll probably have... Um, station set up in communities where people can come sign you know if we don't get to their house but uh the amount of canvassers we have right now we should have people at your house within a week or two um all over the city just just the amount of support like it's hard to fathom and it's hard to wrap my little head around like how much people have offered to get the the the, yeah get out Mm -hmm. there um it's been amazing what's the deadline 
Uh, well, the 60 days or? Yeah, with 60 days, that takes us to when? I'll be honest, I don't know. Um, I I haven't done that math. I, I'll be honest, like, I don't know. But the <laughs> but clock the clock started ticking, what, two days ago on this? Two days ago. So, yeah, I've got yeah, okay. 58 or 59 days. And if it falls on a weekend, then it goes to the next business day. So I'll, I'll have that on the website, like, the countdown, okay. I guess. So that's, that's early April, more or less. Yeah, exactly, okay. yeah. All right. Well, uh, that website is mentioned, recallmayorgondick.com. We'll see how this all plays out. But Landon, thanks uh, so much for making some time for us here this afternoon. Appreciate it. Awesome. Thanks, Rob. All the best. There you go. That's uh, Calgary business owner Landon Johnston, who has uh, launched this petition. Uh, So there's the overview of why he's doing this, how this is all going to work. It is an extremely high bar here. In order of the in, in terms of the the number of signatures that need to be collected and the very tight timeline for doing that. So 60 days to gather about 500,000 physical signatures. Is that impossible? Well, it's not going to be easy. Let's put it that way. But yeah, look, I mean, if this was a popular mayor, it, would, it basically would be impossible. But that's very much not the, the current reality. Earlier this week, Monday was uh, the deadline for public submissions on the federal government's proposed emissions cap on the oil and gas sector. Like this represents a big departure from the government's environmental policy, which up until now has been we're going to price the emissions. That doesn't matter where they come from in terms of what part of the country, what industry. Uh, a ton is a ton and a you know, car- ton of carbon is uh, going to have a certain price attached to it. But we're seeing now a different approach. First, it was the clean electricity regulations, uh, and now it's this emissions cap. So this is the first example of the government imposing an emissions cap on a specific sector. So the oil and gas sector will need to lower emissions by 35 to 38 percent relative to 2019 levels by 2030. Now, the federal government says this is going to help us get to net zero by 2050. Interestingly enough, the Alberta government supports a 2050 net zero target. So does the Pathways Alliance that represents some of the biggest players in the oil sands. But the concern about this, uh, uh, this cap, this emissions cap, that this is not realistic and that this is going to have some dire economic consequences. So Alberta's energy minister or environment minister rather was in Ottawa this week to meet with her federal counterpart to discuss this. The two obviously far apart. This may all end up in court. The Alberta government also commissioned some work from the Conference Board of Canada to study in detail what the impact of this could be. And this report paints a pretty dire picture about the impact not just on the economy and jobs in Alberta, but on the national economy. As much as a $600 billion hit to the Canadian economy. That's an eye-popping number, isn't it? Starting us up for more, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Tony Bonin, who is uh, Director of Economic Research with the Conference Board of Canada, conferenceboard.ca. Tony, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Hi, Rob. Thanks so much for having me today. All right. So how do you go about assessing, you know, the you know question like this in terms of the impact of something that, that's not yet implemented? Yeah, great question. Um, it was a challenging one. There was a fairly short turnaround uh, to have results analyzing the impacts of this policy in time for the consultation period. We at the conference board maintain a set of forecast models, macroeconomic models, uh, forecasting GDP, employment, uh, things like this, interest rates, what have you. And we, we maintain those for Canada nationally and for each province and territory. So in essence, we, we took that model and imposed a shock in the oil and gas sector across Canada to see what would need to be reduced in the sectors in order to hit the lower emissions targets that is set out in this new policy or this new regulation. Are we able to draw any conclusions or make assumptions about industry's ability to reduce emissions? Because I think the federal government's trying to paint a pretty rosy picture here that, look, as long as the industry can reduce emissions, it doesn't have to mean a reduction in, in production. So in what we forecast essentially is the difference between our baseline model where there's a significant amount of growth in Alberta in particular in the oil and gas sector and look at the difference from that higher level of output in 2030 and beyond versus what would happen under a, a lower cap 
scenario, again, proposed under this regulation. And there we see a pretty massive impact. Uh, for Canada overall, GDP is down by about, about 0.9% versus our baseline. And Alberta takes the brunt of that hit, not surprisingly, given the size of the oil and gas sector. And we see a reduction of about 3.8% versus that baseline. Even with that big hit in 2030, we still see growth between now and the next decade. So really what we're forecasting here is slower growth than what would happen otherwise. Right. It's important to make that distinction. But still, I mean, the report refers to this as severe negative impacts. So, so there's some very real measurable consequences here. Yes, no doubt. I mean, the the slowing of growth is, is significant, and uh, we're estimating an impact on the order of about uh, 19 or, or $20 billion in GDP in Alberta alone from this. But again, it's versus that baseline. Um, we would also see lower employment levels than what we would have in our baseline scenario. But again, in all of these cases, we're still seeing growth is just much slower than we would uh, see were this policy potentially not in place. What about, you know, the, the revenue impact for the Alberta government? What would, what would we see there? Yes, because a lot of the revenue in Alberta, as you know, is coming from royalties from the sector. We see a pretty sizable impact. Revenue is down by about 4.5% versus, the, the, again, that baseline number because of the, the, slower, the lower level of output in, uh, in future years. Does this address at all whether this kind of policy is even necessary? I, I think there's a, a shared desire, as mentioned, to, to try to get to net zero by 2050, to make the oil and gas sector more efficient, to make use of more technology. Uh, so can we draw any conclusions about whether this emissions cap is even needed to get us there? Well, it's going to be hard to get to the 2050 net zero target without significant changes in the Canadian economy uh, across the board. What we're trying to highlight through this analysis is the, the very real fact that Alberta is going to bear the brunt of this because of the size of that oil and gas sector that's you know, been a, a, a boon for jobs and for growth for, for many years. And we need to be clear-eyed about what that impact is going to be so we can plan around it. There are alternative mechanisms, of course, um, new technologies, uh, CCUS, that's carbon capture utilization storage, which uh, is a major way that you can reduce carbon emissions uh, through new technology being implemented. But the trade-off there is that it takes a long time to actually implement these new technologies, get them up to speed. So it's, it's, um, if you want to hit your target by 2030, it's going to require a lot of investment today through a variety of um, technologies that in some cases aren't well proven or scaled up to commercial size yet. And in terms of the overall production, because I, I think even if the demand uh, starts to decline, there is still going to be demand for, for oil and gas, but uh, it may well be then that as a consequence of this policy, Alberta will be limited in ability to meet that or that we'll have to leave uh, you know, oil in the ground or some projects won't go ahead. Like, What are we looking at on that side? Yeah, so in our forecast for Canada overall, we're looking at um, still a growth in terms of the number of barrels being produced across Canada. So in our baseline scenario, we're thinking about 14, a little higher than 14% growth in, in uh, oil, oil and gas production. That falls to about 1.6% growth between now and, and 2030, which is pretty small. It's, it's almost flat over the, the next um, uh, 13 years or so. Um, what in reality that is going to be is a mix of current some current projects potentially stopping those that are maybe higher cost, less economically uh, feasible. Some new projects will come online, certainly, but then others just might not go forward when they would have otherwise. So you have a mix of sort of all of these things, some starting, some stopping, and some not going forward. Well, look, I think this is an important contribution to the conversation. I mean, supposedly the federal government has its own economic assessment. I, I guess we haven't seen that yet, but it would certainly be helpful if, if they would release that, wouldn't it? So they have some estimates of the trajectories um, similar to, to what we have. Um, there are several components to actually meet the, the cap on the oil and gas sector in terms of greenhouse gas emissions. Um, the main one, and, and we think the most likely scenario, is reducing emissions from methane, which can be done relatively cheaply. And so mm -hmm. we, we accept that sort of view that methane, reduction, methane emissions can be reduced by about 75% versus 2012 levels. The main difference, though, is how much more efficiencies in terms of greenhouse gases are you going to get 
from other technologies in the oil and gas sector. And in our view, we're going to see over the next 10 or 15 years, a, a similar trend as we've seen in the past uh, decade or so. Increasing efficiencies, lower emission per dollar in the economy, but not uh, a big increase or, or more rapid set of efficiencies. Very interesting. Much more to mention, conferenceboard.ca. Uh, Tony, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Appreciate it. Hey, thank you, Rob. Always a pleasure. Likewise. All the best. Uh, Tony Bonin, uh, Director of Economic Research at the Conference Board of Canada. So they've done their own assessment here at the behest of the Alberta government. And what they find is not a pretty picture. Severe negative impacts. Suggesting anywhere from 82,000 to 151,000 jobs lost by 2040. So they're looking at that period between 2030 and 2040. Uh, jobs lost by the end of that decade, including between 54,000 and 91,000 here in Alberta alone. Uh, nominal GDP in Canada would be reduced between 600 billion and 1 trillion between 2030 and 40. Alberta's GDP uh, would be uh, hit by 3.8% in that period. So still there would be growth, but it would be cut by that much. Alberta government revenues could be chopped by as much as uh, anywhere from $73 billion to $127 billion over that period. A uh, similar hit to federal revenues. So, yeah, this, this hurts in a lot of ways. What is the upside? What do we have to show for all of this? Now, I think, as mentioned, this is likely all headed to a court battle. And, again, there's always, of course, the uh, possibility, maybe even a likelihood that within the next year or two, we'll see uh, some drastic changes in federal policy with the election of a new government. But uh, that's what we're bracing for right now. And not surprisingly, this, you know, is going to disproportionately affect Alberta. Welcome back. Welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge with you here on a Thursday afternoon, 403-974-8255. So obviously we've been going through, not just in Alberta, right across the country, uh, kind of a dual crisis uh, of addiction, but also an overdose crisis. And so how best to tackle that? You know, the Alberta government has really tried to focus more on the treatment side. I mean, that addresses the addiction component. And I guess maybe if you get less addiction, you can try to reduce overdoses. Part of the problem right now is just how toxic the street drug supply is. So one of the responses to that has been to try to provide some access to uh, drugs that aren't toxic or contaminated. In other words, uh, safer supply. Which, if used as intended, can save lives. Someone who's addicted and is using, you know, if they know what they're using, uh, you know, they're less likely to die, less likely to overdose. But there's a question that's come up in all of this. What if they're not using those drugs we're supplying them with? What if they're being diverted? What if they're ending up on the streets? What if they're now being used as recreational drugs uh, by those for whom they were never intended? Uh, because that's a problem. And it's a problem. I mean, there was a report recently from, uh, the, from BC officials indicating that, yes, this is an area of concern. So what can be done about it? Well, the Alberta government, Alberta's Minister of Mental Health and Addiction, Dan Williams, has uh, written a letter to the federal government urging them uh, to take some steps here. Uh, one thing that could be done would be to make these drugs traceable. So if we're providing them to, to addicts, that we would have some way of knowing what happens to them. So joining us to talk more about this issue, someone who's been writing a lot about uh, this matter, Adam Zevo is a National Post columnist uh, and journalist. He's also director of the Center for Responsible Drug Policy. Adam, good to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, so this issue does seem to be getting a lot more attention, uh, as noted. Um, and, and I guess in your view, it certainly needs some attention. Well, I think, you know, it's getting a lot of attention because it is a pretty significant issue that the federal government and D.C. government have tried to downplay. Uh, they essentially denied that this existed up until recently. Uh, I first reported on the issue of safer supply diversion back in May and had government officials and harm reduction activists say that this was disinformation, that this was false and fear-mongering. Uh, but my reporting did force the B.C. government to do an investigation, and so they consulted with clinicians and drug users all throughout the province and then released this report last week where they confirmed that yes safer supply diversion is a common occurrence and that it is causing quote unquote moral distress amongst clinicians 
so much so that many of them, particularly in downtown Vancouver, have abandoned the program because they see mass diversion happening. And it seems as if safer supply isn't actually helping patients, but is actually uh, destabilizing them, halting their recoveries, and causing people to abandon traditional evidence-based medications such as methadone. So on the whole, the whole thing is pretty concerning, and I'm glad that it's finally getting the recognition that it deserves. We mentioned methadone, right? Because and 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 we've we've long used that as a way of of helping to deal with opioid addiction. So that that's a form of safer supply. But when we talk about safer supply in this context, like what are we talking about? Who's providing it? How how does this all work? Well, I want to really stress that uh, methadone is not safer supply. That's known as opioid agonist therapy. It's very different. Has very different goals. So opioid agonist therapy, known as OAT, so methadone and suboxone, they give you. Uh, very weak, long-acting opioids that just manage your cravings and don't give you a euphoric effect. So the whole point of that is to essentially just get you towards a sober life. Safer Supply gives you uh, very, very powerful, short-acting drugs, uh, which are meant to get you high and act as a substitute for illicit substances. So, for example, giving hydromorphone, which is an opioid as powerful as heroin, to try to dissuade people from fentanyl. Uh, now the BC government is actually just giving out fentanyl uh, and is giving out stimulants and wants to sort of uh, expand stimulants, although it's unclear what that means. So we talk about diversion. What's happening? What does that mean? Well, so diversion is this idea that people will pick up their drugs and then they'll just sell it on the street to buy stronger substances. And I've interviewed over 100 people who have testified to this occurring, including former drug users who are not on safer supply but see this in their circles. Uh, I interviewed a group of about seven or eight drug users in London, Ontario, who estimated, for the most part, that about 80% of safer supply patients resell the, most of their drugs. Uh, generous person who I interviewed said maybe 50%, right? So it's quite common. Uh, now, diversion happens for a variety of different reasons. Uh, most commonly, it's because the safer supply drugs aren't strong enough. Hydromorphone is as strong as heroin, but fentanyl is 10 to 50 times stronger. So if you're a fentanyl addict, hydromorphone isn't going to do it for you. So, of course, you do the rational thing and you sell it to go and get a stronger substance. However, I do know that organized crime is involved. You know, I spoke with a drug dealer who would mention that uh, other drug dealers that he know would assemble teams of about six or seven safer supply patients, and they get about a 1,000 pills a week, and then he would resell them wholesale on the Internet. So the safer supply patients would sell them for a dollar a pill, He'd resell them wholesale for $3, and they'd ultimately end up on the streets for 5 to $10. Uh, we also now know, and I reported this last year, but this was confirmed in the BC report, that vulnerable women are often coerced into securing as much safer supply as possible by violent or abusive uh, romantic partners for resale on the black market. So that's another avenue. So the idea of, of making this at least more traceable, so we mentioned the letter that uh, Dan Williams, Alberta's Minister of Mental Health and Addiction, sent to the feds. Uh, can this be done? How would that be done? Oh, it can be done quite easily. So there's four different methods that were identified, uh, <clears throat> which each of which can be, you know, basically this kind of in a hierarchy. So at the most basic level, you can ensure that all safer supply comes in unique packaging. So that if you come across that packaging, you know where this is from. But of course, many safer supply patients remove their packaging. Uh, so then you have special shapes for the pills. Mm -hmm. uh, but then, of course, people will crush the pills. So it's important to make sure these pills have special colors. Uh, but then on top of that, the final and most interesting way is to use something known as a chemical identifier. So this would be, for example, a sugar or a vitamin that's not really metabolizable. Uh, and stays in someone's blood so it can be tested through drug testing or through autopsies. And this is regularly done in the United States to combat drug counterfeiting. So essentially to protect the profits of for-profit pharmaceutical companies. And there's extensive guidelines on how to do this safely. So if we can use this method to protect pharma profits in the U.S., I don't see why we can't use that in Canada to protect our communities from drug diversion. But if they were traceable, how would we use that? Is it about tracing it back to the patient or the individual to whom it was provided in the first place? Or how would we use that, that tool? Well, I think for packaging, you can go back to an individual, uh, <clears throat> to an individual uh, patient. 
But, you know, the other things, for example, dyes and chemical identifiers, you can't know uh, exactly which patient received that drug, but you can know that the drug is from safer supply. Right. And that's important so that we can see uh, where safer supplies harm in communities, uh, where youth are getting access to this. And what this allows us to do is it allows victims of safer supply diversion to get justice. Because I am aware of families who have youth who have developed addictions because of safer supply who may be interested in suing the federal government for putting their kids in danger. But right now, because they can't conclusively prove that link, they can't see justice. And if you have the threat of lawsuits, that forces the government and that forces safer supply prescribers to act more responsibly, which I think is important. It's interesting because I mean it's pretty clear that, that Stan Williams, the Alberta government, are not necessarily the biggest proponents of a harm reduction approach. But you would think then to, you know, protect this kind of an approach that it should be the proponents of harm reduction who are kind of front and center and saying, yeah, let's take these steps. But that, that doesn't seem to be the case. Well, that's the thing is that I, I don't think they're actually committed to protecting communities from safer supply diversion. Many harm reduction activists have actually argued that diversion is a good thing because we should be flooding communities with diverted prescription opioids because that might crowd out uh, illicit opioids, which is ridiculous because the last time we did that 20 years ago, that's what's called the OxyContin crisis. Uh, flooding communities with diverted prescription opioids is why we have a crisis today. On top of that, I do get the sense that the government stakeholders that support safer supply don't want people to know uh, where diversion is happening because it gives them plausible deniability. So the BC government and federal government both claim that they are closely tracking diversion. But, for example, when Global News Vancouver uh, went out and sent an undercover reporter to buy the lot, sorry, a hydromorphone off the street, and when they reported that, you know, two young women had gotten addicted due to diverted safer supply, the BC government said, well, how do we know it's actually safer supply? We just don't know. Right. So. They, they, they want to keep that plausible deniability. Well, we'll see what, uh, what kind of response this gets, uh, this request from, from Alberta. Much more your latest is mentioned up at uh, nationalpost.com. Adam, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Appreciate this. That's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. All the best. Uh, that is uh, journalist, National Post columnist Adam Zebo, also director of the newly founded uh, Canadian Center for Responsible Drug Policy. So uh, that if we're going to do the safer supply approach, we need some, some safeguards in place here. As you know, uh, Alberta's Premier recently uh, unveiled a sweeping new policy that is going to deal with gender, transgender issues. So it affects schools, it affects the medical system, and I guess we'll see in the coming weeks and months what all of that looks like. There's another side to all of this, though. It involves sport and competition. And as the Premier describes, of protecting female sports. A lot of women and girls who participate in sports, and many of those participating in sports do so in the confines of what is a female-only category. And there's a reason why that exists. And this has been an ongoing conversation long before the Premier brought this up. And how do we protect the integrity, the fairness of female sports? There are reasons why, biological reasons why, in many sports and activities, women just don't compete with men. And we've seen internationally a lot of sports bodies and organizations you know, struggle with what to do here. You know, Some have just outright decided that transgender athletes cannot compete in female sports. Uh, others have some conditions attached to it, uh, looking at hormones or uh, did that individual go through puberty as a male? Those kinds of questions. Now, the premier did touch on this uh, press conference the other day, and she talked about why she sees a, a need to, to address this. I've been watching as well some of the, uh, some of the uh, incidents that have happened in sport. I just saw a video making the round about a rugby game where one woman was just picked up and pile drive by a much stronger transgender female athlete. And then the MMA fighter who was in the finals and just refused to participate in the final because she was up against a transgender athlete. And her view is that biological uh, athletes who are born biological male will have a punch that's 165% stronger. So we have to make sure that we're protecting the safety of women and girls in sport as well. 
Which is a valid point. Again, it should be noted, it sounds like the, the uh, rugby player she was referring to actually is a biological female. I think in all of this, we need to be careful about, uh, you know, making those kinds of, of unfounded accusations. But again, like I say, I think there's some legitimate issues here. So how do we need to address this and why do we need to address this? Well, someone who's been speaking and writing a lot about these issues and has been involved in, in women's sports for a very long time is Linda Blade, former president with Athletics Alberta, former Canadian track and field champion, and has spent the last quarter century or so as a high-level sport performance coach here in Alberta. Uh, Linda, thank you so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Rob. Thanks for having me. Uh, we, we've seen other, you know, as I say, sports organizations deal with this, but at least in a Canadian context, is I, I guess this is the first example of a, a level of government taking some action on this? Well, taking some action to protect female athletes. Uh, the other part of it is the federal government has been for almost its full term, nine years now, uh, making rules and regulations that actually put female athletes in harm and danger and, and expose them to unfairness. So, um it's welcome that Daniel Smith said this. Let's talk about where, where where this is at, because as you say, I mean, you know, there there was a push for inclusion, but then, you know, there was, I think, some pushback from a lot of female athletes in, in various sports and organizations. We've seen some of those organizations kind of rethink this, bring in some new rules. Where, where is all of this trending? Well, my hope is that it's trending to get back to the point where we recognize that bodies play sports, not identities. Um, so if you have a certain religion or a political position, we've never, never categorized sports on the basis of religion or ideology. So why are we doing it now? I mean, the truth is the beauty of sport was always that you compete as a male-born person or a female-born person, and you leave all the baggage on the sidelines and just run your race. And um, trying to mess with it and call it inclusion of male persons in female sports that's actually exclusion. It's the opposite of what they're claiming because, of course, it excludes female athletes. Right. One of the, you know, the, the uh, you know, the, the research area of research you were involved in, and, and this came out last year, some of the, the surveys that have been done uh, amongst mm -hmm. female athletes and how they feel about this, how they feel about where this is all headed, you know, their thoughts on these issues around fairness and protecting female sports. What are female athletes saying? Well, when they're finally asked, um, female athletes to the tune of 80 to 90 percent want to have sport to be female only, which with good reason, because the minute you put a male body in there, uh, it's going to be not fair and sometimes dangerous, depending on the sport. If it's contact sport, the chances of injury goes up 30 to, you know, 35 percent as far as head, neck and back injuries. And um, so so I think uh, female athletes definitely uh, feel like there is uh, a, a place for respecting everybody's identity. But let me, can I just say something about something you mentioned in the intro? As you said, uh, we can't have transgender athletes in, in sport, in women's sport. No, we do have them. They're called female athletes who identify as men. Female-born athletes who identify as men or non-binary literally stay in women's sports we've right. already yeah. accepted them yeah no that's an important point i mean one obvious example is uh you know the the athlete known as quinn who plays on yeah. the, the canadian women's national soccer team does not identify yeah. as female uh right. competes as a female right and because why and it doesn't bother anybody at all it's not groundbreaking right the person a person born female no matter how they identify are certainly welcome to to play and compete against other females as long as they're not doping and taking high levels of tea or something. But as long as they're in with us, we have never had a problem. And by the way, if you allow a male-born person who identifies as trans to come into the women's category, they are literally discriminating against the trans who are female-born. Right. So it's not even about transgender at all. I mean, just compete in the category of your biological birth. Now, there are safety issues, I think, as you pointed to in some contact sports. I mean, there's also, you know, just straight up fairness issues. We saw, you yeah. know, last year in powerlifting, for example, where it's yeah. not not a safety issue, but we had a transgender competitor uh, shatter the, the, you know, not just break, but shatter the, the female powerlifting record. So is that fair, right? There, there's that side of it. No, it's not fair. And that person's name is Anne Andres, and that person literally now for their age category and their um, weight category, 
now have all the women's Alberta records yeah. in powerlifting. I mean, how is that? That just doesn't even compute. That doesn't make sense because why would women want to compete in a sport where all the men can come in, male-born athletes can come in, and just take their records and prizes away? Like, it doesn't even make sense. Well, thing, it's not dangerous. Women powerlifters could compete against male powerlifters, but that, that's not the reason why there's, there's separate female categories in sports. Not in that sport. I mean, the no. whole point is fairness and, and you know, it's, it's just like in anything. So sport is divided. If you talk about participation, sport is divided into categories, and I would say stratification by age group or by, you know, by different, by different characteristics enables more people to come into sport and compete. So in other words, if there was only one global age category, of course, all the 20-year-old, 20-something, 30-something males would win, and the little boys wouldn't compete because mm. they couldn't compete against grown men, so therefore we have age categories. So right. the whole point of having specific boundaries and categories within which people compete is to enable many, many more people to participate and compete. And... Um, Biological sex is literally the, the first division in sport is male versus female. And then you go age categories. And then when you have like weightlifting or boxing, then you go into the weight categories. And then sometimes if you want to go into the Paralympics, then you have the disability categories. But, but those boundaries, no matter whether it's age, weight, whatever, they're very strictly controlled for a reason mm -hmm. because that's what allows people to participate. Yeah. And I mean, look, there are some sports or activities uh, that, that are co-ed, right? That, that maybe are right. more casual, not competitive, but where women, right. women and men compete or play together. And, and that's a non-issue, right? And that's certainly a non-issue right. when it comes to, to identity. Right. And, and I would say the same thing, for example, in schools like phys ed classes, um, unless, you know, there's been sometimes it's very unfortunate that you, you, if you're a bad ed teacher and you let boys and dodgeball just wail the ball against all the little girls, I mean, that's also right. not great. But, I mean, there, there's, there's times where it's a teaching environment and you can make it as an instructor, as a coach. You can certainly divide up the room in, a, in the way that everybody gets a chance and nobody's going to be put in harm's way. And that's, a you know, you're teaching technique and, te and strategy and, and tactics it's an educational situation where boys and girls are together. And, you know, I mean, there, there's all kinds of different contexts in which, even in highly competitive sport like track and field, when I was on the national team, our coaches would make us train against the guys because, of course, like, okay, so we're doing hill sprints. Okay, girls, you get a 10-yard 10, 10 start, and the boys will chase you down and yeah. you see who can catch you at the top of the hill. So we had lots of inclusivity of males, females, all training together. But when it comes time, for serious sport competition to run for the prize, of course you divide it into the serious, uh, strict age, sex uh, categories. I mean, that, that's just how it works. If, if you don't do it that way, it isn't really sport because there's no meaning to it if you allow a male person with all their advantages to come into the women's category. What does it even mean? What's the meaning of that win? Yeah, exactly. So what's your understanding, I guess, of how this is all going to work? I, I don't know. I mean, maybe in some cases the Alberta government can give directives to certain organizations. Maybe yes. some of this can be linked to funding. I guess in mm -hmm. practice, what, how's this going to be implemented? Well, the very first, the easiest model you can possibly use is knowing that the female athlete, born female, has no advantages that she brings into a male category. The best way to deal with this is have female and, and the male become sort of open category. So yeah. wh whatever identities you have other than strictly female and if you want to be in with the guys, then you don't, you know, as long as you don't bring an advantage into a category, go ahead and compete over there. So the, the most natural, if, it's, if it has to stay binary, like I think about track and field, we don't have a lot of extra time and we're renting Let's say we're renting the Butter Dome and we have a huge track meet with all these age categories and kids. We wouldn't have a lot of extra time to have four and five and six different types of trans categories. So what you would do is basically if it still has to be binary, then you just say, look, uh, female only. And then and for like the 12 year olds, female 12 year olds and then open would be boys and whoever wants to run with the boys. And, and then nobody has a competitive advantage. We'll see how it all plays out in the months ahead. Linda, appreciate your perspective on all this. Thanks yeah. so much for making some time for us here.
Yeah, thank you very much for having me. All the best. Take care. Uh, that's Linda Blade, as mentioned, former president with Athletics Alberta, former Canadian track and field champion, and has spent uh, 25 years as a high-level sport performance professional coach here in Alberta. I think there are some some legitimate issues here. And I got this text here, interestingly, from Josie. says, I'm a trans woman, oppose virtually all of what Danielle is proposing, but I am most trans people I know are fine with the idea of keeping trans women out of women's sports. Trans women want to level the playing field, but we're not interested in stacking the deck in our favor. Uh, keeping us out of women's sport is fair. It's not a gender issue. It's a biological issue. Yeah, and I think, you, you know, we can separate these things. I, I got concerns, too, about how this is going to play out in schools, you know, with gender pronouns and those issues, certainly when it comes to medical treatments. But this, yeah, I can understand this as, as a fairness issue. And it is about biology, because if it were about gender identity, then Quinn, who we mentioned, and it just goes by the name Quinn, would not be on the Canadian women's team. The, the women's soccer team, because Quinn does not identify as a woman. So if it's identity, then Quinn should not be on the women's team. But Quinn plays on the women's team, not because of Quinn's identity, but because of biology. I mean, Quinn could go play on the men's team, but nobody's suggesting that. I don't think any, it, would, it would seem weird even in a way if, if that were the case. But, you know, the idea of sort of referring to it then as open category and female category maybe that's a more inclusive way of, of dealing with it but th there are some some biological realities as to why women's sport exists as, as a separate entity both in terms of safety especially if you want to talk about combat sports you know mma or boxing or contact sports like hockey or football and that sort of thing and, and even just fairness issues. I mean, you know, powerlifting is an example. You have the, um, even in swimming, you know, the, the uh, athlete known as Leah Thomas, who was dominating at the NCAA level. So we'll see how this all gets implemented in Alberta, as mentioned. So the, the premier sort of said that, you know, she, she wants it to be basically that female sports are for biological females. But is, can Alberta just impose those rules on any sport, any organization? <music> Just recently up in Edmonton, they lifted what was a mandatory ban on non-essential water use. Uh, basically, people had to or, or were supposed to take shorter showers, uh, turn off the tap when brushing your teeth or shaving, delay laundry or dishwasher use. But it also meant that laundromats, car washes, uh, what was deemed to be non-essential water use by businesses, that wasn't allowed. So basically, those businesses had to close. Now, this was because they, they had an issue with the, their water treatment plant that's now been addressed. But one of the questions, you know, the whole situation up there raised, like, is this going to be our norm? Not just because there's a problem with the water treatment plant, but basically because we don't have enough water. There's a lot of concern about what we're heading into this year in terms of drought conditions. 2021 was a pretty bad year in Alberta. A uh, little bit of recovery the last couple of years, but uh, things aren't, aren't looking so great this year. Some of the numbers that the uh, Alberta government has put out for southern Alberta, uh, the Old Man Reservoir, uh, west of Fort McLeod at 28% capacity, normally would be between 60 and 80%. Uh, the St. Mary's Reservoir is at 15 would normally between, be between 40 and 70. Uh, before the freeze-up, the Willow Creek uh, near Claire's home logged its lowest monthly flow since 2000. So those are some of the numbers uh, we're seeing. Uh, and that's not just for our own water use, you know, for industry. This could be a big problem for those in agriculture, obviously, even, you know, for ranchers having to downsize their cattle herds. What about the oil and gas industry and how much water they use? So what can we do about all of this? We can't control the weather. We can't make it rain or snow more than, than it's going to. The Alberta government has set up a, a new advisory committee meant to try to explore what options there might be. Uh, so they're going to do uh, this work for a year, prevent, uh, present some recommendations to the environment minister. So uh, it is a response to everything we're preparing for and expecting to be dealing with this year. Joining us to talk more about all these issues, very pleased to welcome in the program here this afternoon, uh, one of the members of this drought advisory committee, Paul McLaughlin, is the Reeve of Pinoca County, also happens to be a biologist himself. He's uh, also president of the rural municipalities of Alberta, joins us on the line here this afternoon. Paul, good to have you with us. Welcome to the program. 
Great. Thanks for having me, for sure. Okay, so first of all, give me a, a, your sense, anyway, of, of how bad things are, are shaping up to be this year. What's the situation, as you understand it? Well, you know, I think we've been fairly lucky. Uh, you know, we had a pretty extensive drought in 2021, um, and I think that uh, it's been a bit of a carryover. You've got an extreme El Nino event uh, coupled on. On We just didn't have a lot of gas in the tank, so to speak. So so I think we've been building up to this. I, I'm pretty appreciative. We, we really, I'll be honest with you, Rob, we, we saw this in August of right. last year. Uh, you, you could feel it. Uh, this is critically important. We do not have the snowpack, and uh, this is important, I think, to all Albertans, to be quite honest. So 2021 was was pretty rough. We we saw things, I guess, were a little bit better in 2022 and 2023. So how does 2024 compare, at least as, as insofar as we can tell right now? Well, you, you know, we, we've had we've, we've been fairly lucky as Alberta. We haven't really seen um, a, a, an Albertan issue. We've seen localized drought. And, uh, you know, the Wapiti River uh, in Peace Country is the lowest recorded ever. And so when you have this extensive province-wide drought, I, I'm the Riva Pinocchio County, um, uh, we're at a subsoil deficit that's once in a generation and actually one in 50-year uh, subsoil subsurface drought right now. So so this is a province-wide issue and not localized. And I think mm-hmm. that uh, looking at that conversation, I think is, is quite unique to Albertans for sure. And I think it's something we really probably have never dealt with, uh, at least as far as back to the knowledge that I have access to. So the fact that, you know, we're talking about this, we've got this committee, you know, is this uh, all a positive in your view that we've, we've got some, some attention focused around these issues? Well, I, I think, you know, the committee, and, and I'm, I'm thankful for the, the, the breadth and depth of the knowledge. And, and I think the hard part, Rob, is we have some really difficult discussions. And I think that, you know, we look at it that this is a conversation for now. But uh, what does this conversation look like if we're in a, a multi-year drought? And, and we haven't, we've had the privilege of having events that have pulled us out of the tough situations. But, you know, do we have the institutional and systemic strength to take on a multi-year drought? So I'm appreciative of now. Um, but I'm a little concerned about the future. We're looking at models that are a hotter, drier future, and we need to make sure that we're ready for those when we're making decisions that are coupled to that. What can we do, though? Like, you know, how much of this can we actually control? Well, you know, I think that it, the first step, and I, I, it's funny because it, it's one of those, those it's, it's called a super wicked problem. Like, what can you do as an individual? Should I take less showers? Yeah. Um, but, you know, should I, should I not water my lawn? But, but we need to value water. When I say value water, of course, everybody gets upset and you can't have it. But valuing water and valuing the landscape as it relates to water, you know, conservation of wetlands, uh, forested ecosystem, having this conversation saying water is important. Preservation of water is important. You know, actually, I think in 2018, I think the government of Alberta had a a water recycling. Uh, We're all set up for water recycling legislation. So the water in the back of our toilet, Rob, is cleaner than 90% of the planet's water that's available to them. And and so we, there's things that we can do. We've been quite privileged. Uh, Other jurisdictions have dealt with drought, multi-year drought, and uh, we need to make those changes uh, as an organization, as a municipalities, and also as the individual, and and ensure that we're ready for uh, this unpredictable future that we're walking into. Well, you know, I mean, you're speaking as, as the Reeve of a, a Benoka County uh, municipality, I mean, you know, are, are these issues that for the province, uh, you know, the municipalities, how much kind of jurisdictional overlap is there on these issues? Well, I think, you know, we, we obviously, many municipalities hold water licenses, uh, definitely domestic water supply. Um, you know, we are, are a bit of a, you know, rural municipalities are, are, are a voice for our agricultural communities. Um, industrial use of water um, does fall within our pieces. So this is multi-jurisdictional but, and, and definitely um, multiple levels. But, but I think that, you know, having that lens of, of land use and, and prioritizing water conservation, water protection, and all those other pieces, I think that really falls back to all jurisdictions, and even at the individual level, um, people's use of water. And, and, you know, anybody who's traveled in the southern United States, they, they don't have the, the wonderful resources we have. Um, but, there, you know, there's 600,000 people in, in the province of Alberta that rely on, on groundwater for their drinking water source. And, and protecting all those pieces, I think, are, are a critically important discussion that I think we can all have at all levels of the, of the conversation, for sure. Right. I mean, what about the idea, and I know it's come up about, you know, sharing water, being able to to transport water from one part of the province to the other because, you know, the situation's not the same everywhere. Are those kinds of ideas feasible? Are these the kinds of ideas maybe this committee's going to look at? For sure, and, and I get, and this is where I think I get extremely political. So, interbasin transfers is the term that's used, um, and 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 I I say interbasin transfers is your last shot, and so you should look for 
efficiencies in the system? Have you done every single thing you possibly can and then consider interbasin transfers? Um, you know, I think wh- whiskeys for drinking and waters for fighting has always been the term. Um, we need to be critically careful that we're looking at interbasin transfers as the solution to the future um, because there's a lot of folks that rely on that. I know the Red Deer River has some allocation capacity and, and, and the south of the province is over allocated. And so, yeah, this committee is going to have those discussions and, and I think that priority will be there. Um, those are the very difficult conversations that we've never had that I think that uh, we're going to be having in the near future, at least within the next decade, on how we're actually moving the, the, the water plentiful north, moving water potentially to the uh, water deficit south for sure. Well, some important conversations ahead. This committee, I guess, is going to operate for one year. That's That's the plan here, Paul? It is, yeah, and I think that again, um, I, I'm actually uh, quite happy with the, the size of the committee. A pretty, pretty agile group. Um, I've, I've done a deep dive in all the resumes, and I'm excited to do the work. and And our our job is to advise uh, the minister, and I think that the terms of reference are as such. and And uh, I'm I'm honored to have the voice of rural Alberta, and I think that uh, we'll get some of those hard discussions done, and hopefully provide minister with the advice that uh, that they can use moving forward. I look forward to see what comes out of this. Paul, thanks so much for your time here this afternoon. Appreciate it. Yeah, appreciate the conversation for sure. There you go. That's Paul McLaughlin. As mentioned, he's uh, president of the Rural Municipalities uh, of Alberta, Reeve of Pinocchio County, one of the members of this Water Advisory Committee that the Alberta government has set up. So, yeah, look, they're going to work on this for a year. They'll come back with some recommendations for the uh, for the environment minister. So there's really nothing that's likely to come of this that's going to make any difference this year. I mean, at least we're talking about all of these issues, but there's really probably no avoiding the fact that we're going to be facing some real challenges this year in terms of drought conditions. I mean, obviously with that comes, you know, the increased fire risk from all of that dryness. That's a whole other issue. Uh, So it could be a rough year on those two fronts, right? Between the dryness, the lack of water, the impact that's going to have on our own water use, industry's water use, but are there ways that we could maybe better allocate those resources, share those those water resources? Uh, what does that look like in terms of moving that around? So that, I think that's going to be a part of the conversation moving forward. Again, I don't know if that's something we can do in short order uh, to, to address what we're going to be facing here this summer. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.